Welcome, you're officially locked into Persuasions of Comfort. I am your host, Nawum. I want to give a big shout out to all the listeners out there for tuning in as much as you do. The love and support is greatly appreciated. Now, the first thing I want to do is introduce my guest on the show for today. It took me a while to get her on the bus because she's always busy. I had to reach out to her assistant in order to get this on the calendar. So it is an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show today. Miss Safa, welcome. Thank you for having me. Good afternoon, everyone. I want to begin with a little bit of background about yourself. You are a double major in international studies and political science, area of concentration in Middle East and Africa. You are a City Year Corps member in Southeast D.C. You furthered your education where you attended grad school at Boston College for social work with concentration in children and families. In addition, you are a part-time clinical therapist focusing on depression and anxiety adjustment behavior in adolescents and young adults. Did I miss anything? You're absolutely correct. Yes, that's a plethora and a mouthful, but thank you for that introduction. For sure. Always a pleasure. So one thing I appreciate the most about you, Ms. Safa, is conversation. We've always managed to have these solid, informative, educational discussions, and I wanted to take an opportunity to share some of these topics with my listeners. And uh, just recently, uh, the topic of discussion was revolving around COVID-19. I brought to your attention that I wanted to do a series on how COVID-19 is disrupting and impacting a lot of different industries and not just lives out there. So... Just for starters, what is your take or your thoughts and how do you feel about this pandemic that we're currently experiencing? I think for some of us, for one, I'm speaking from the clinical perspective. Um, It's a little bit taking us back to become more insular, isolated from the communities they were so much accustomed to. So for one, the natural shock to the change of lifestyle is what's impacting most of my clients that I work with and even myself personally. So we're going through this adjustment phase and some of us are having high anxiety. Some of us are going through depression because of the isolation and the interactions that we're used to on a daily basis. So on a clinical and interpersonal level, I think those are the changes that most people experience in. But also on a macro and a global scale, I think that is a shock because we're not understanding um, what is the magnitude this means for the rest of the world, economically, politically, and also spiritually. Like, what is the world going to look like? And how is this going to impact the frontline workers? How is this going to impact um, basic e-commerce between people from different spaces and how we're going to move forward after this is over, if there's such a time? Um, I think those are some of the changes that we're experiencing. Nicely said. Some of the words I'm able to extract from your response are changes, isolation, adjustment phase, and lack of understanding of the overall bigger picture on how this pandemic is affecting different industries and individuals who are currently on the front line, right? Now, changes, I feel like this pandemic happened so rapidly, a lot of us were not able to utilize our resources in order to adjust to these new living parameters that we have. For instance, on the West Coast, you have shelter in place. That's isolation. On the East Coast, you have, in a tri-state area, you have a curfew where you can't leave your home from 8 
p.m. to 5 a.m. That's another form of isolation. And then you have on a in Europe, I have friends who tell me that they need to print out a form in order and fill it out in order for them to step outside the house to present to authorities whenever they're not indoors. That's another form of isolation. And then you have this understanding of then you talked about the lack of understanding. And for me, I feel like it happened to me several times. For example, when I step outside my house to go for a walk, go for a run or a bike ride around the park, I say to myself, oh, it's not so bad. Like, what's the big fuss? But it isn't until I have another conversation about COVID-19 and the impact that it's having, I realize, oh, this is a big deal. So when I think about this, I think of the word transparency. How important is transparency at this point in time? Because the government's not giving us transparency. The uh, media is not giving us a level of transparency. I think doctors are doing an extensive job on making sure that we do what we need to do as often as we, we need to. But there's other entities that are not giving us a level, a common or a mutual level of transparency. What are your thoughts on that and how important is transparency uh, right now? Um, transparency is a crucial part, right? In order for you to decrease anxiety, you have to be able to predict what's coming. So predictability is something that is not happening with the common folks that we work with and ourselves. So when the government is not telling you information that's been given to them since December, of, of course they knew about this happening in China. Of course China was not transparent as far as letting the global or the World Health Organization be aware of the people who are being impacted, the age group, the number of deaths they were having, and also how rampant and how speedy this pandemic was happening. So no one was aware of it. And now coming to the US, I think when you have leadership such as our current president, which I don't say his name, um, I think that it's very much so disappointing because we're supposed to be the global hegemon and we're supposed to have this so-called the savior of the Western world and the savior of the, the global perspective. So how are you going to be in this position and not know what's happening? So that's going to create distress for the communities that I serve, black and brown people. I know that we're going to have that level of distress. We already don't trust the government. We already don't trust the man. So when you put this level of, oh, my God, the shockwave, it's going to create a, a new level of distress for the government. And also you're telling people the messaging in the third estate, the media, you're saying stay at home, but no one is telling people why. You're not giving the scientific reason why staying at home is helpful. You're not saying that when people are staying at home, you're lowering the curve. What is the curve, right? So basically, when you have this global pandemic, one of the things that has to happen is if everyone gets hit with COVID-19, how are we going to treat them as the infrastructure, the hospitals, the, the treatment services, as far as like the nurses, the doctors? We do not have that much doctors compared to the population. So by people staying at home, it decreases the amount of people who will be impacted and which lessens the resources that needs to be expanded within a certain amount of time. So that's why they're telling us to stay at home. But when you don't explain it from a clinical level, People are like, what are you saying to us? Like, what does that even mean? Why should I even take this seriously? Why should I believe you? So I think that those are the things that the third estate has to be more mindful of. How do you create the message and what is the narrative that you want the, the masses to understand? So I think transparency is a big factor of the panic and the shockwave. 
Now, there's a number of speculating conspiracy theories that have been making its rounds across the Internet. And before I jump into my next question, I wanted to share some of these findings with you guys that I've been reading off of the Economic Times article. And maybe you can elaborate on some of these. The first one that I thought was interesting is that uh, it could be a Chinese cover up. Now, the Chinese government tried to suppress the attempts of whistleblowers who tried to warn the public about this pandemic. Now, although the rumors of the cover up were unsubstantiated, some of the the fact that they're covering up an outbreak and hiding official figures, which you mentioned in your first uh, response, I think to be alarming. The second conspiracy theory that I found interesting was a novel written by an author, Dean Kuntz, The Eyes of Darkness, written back in 1981, where in the passage, a character named Dombey narrates an account of a virus called the Wuhan 400, which was developed at the RDNA lab outside of the city of Wuhan. It was the 400th viable strand of man-made microorganisms created at that research center. Now, the passage gives intricate details about how the virus affects the human body. And I think that the, the, what stands out is the chilling accuracy with when this book was written and the, the particular outbreak, the resemblance between the Wuhan 400 and the coronavirus is eerie, to say the least. The last one that stood out to me the most or all as well is the 5G connection uh that most of uh, most people noticed on Twitter which was tweeted by Carrie Hilson an American singer with 4.2 million Twitter followers she posted this for a reason now COVID-19 is believed to have originated from a wet market in Wuhan China in November Coincidentally, China also turned on some of its 5G networks in November as well. Several conspiracy theories have alleged that the viral videos of people dropping dead and fainting in China were a result of the 5G radio waves messing with oxygen levels in the blood of the general public. Now, reading all of this, there's so many conspiracy theories out there. But amid some of our conversations, there's one underlying theme or thread that seems to uh, appear, and it's government involvement. Uh, in terms of nature versus nurture, are you convinced that this is due to natural causes, or is there some sort of manufactured government involvement um, in this current pandemic? Um, I think that everything can be taken with a grain of salt. Um, everyone has a theory of change and how things can be done and how things come about. Um, from my perspective, as a political scientist and also as a clinician, I look at things from a macro and a micro level. So on the macro level, you have to look at systems, right? So every system has what? Different economical changes that have to happen. For me, you have to follow the money. In order to follow the money, you have to see, okay, what are the changes that are happening? What are the trends that are forming? If we go back, I'm just going to break this down to the macro level so that my theory will not come off as without any type of backing, because I like for people to understand that certain things you have to look at the timeline. So when we go back to the United States has economic changes that happens within different governments that come in. You have the Republican and you have the Democrats. So every time that if you've noticed that the Republican power has been in, in place, 
we have had what global pandemics we have had global wars that we've started and we've gone to different spaces in order to continue to build the economy and with the democrats is also domestic change that they tend to interact more so with so for example when you look at bush one president bush's former president bush's father one we went to the gulf war and that Gulf War was basically between Kuwait, Iraq, and the Middle East. And that was basically the start. That's the longest war we've been in for the longest. And that was basically created jobs within what the military and also gave the U.S. presence within the Middle East. And then we moved from there. That war never ended so smoothly. Then you had, after President won, then you had the Clinton administration came into power. And they went into domestic change. They went into mass incarceration. So if you look at the ACLU, they gave the breakdown for the amount of mass incarceration, amount of people in the world that we have. So America makes up about less than 5% of the global population, but about 25% of the prisoners in the world are within the United States. So if since 1970 to now, incarceration has increased by 700%. So that's an economic pipeline. So when you have mass incarceration, in order for you to have a prison within a community, you have to bring a certain amount of people. Like, let's say they wanted to bring one in my own county, let's say Prince George's County. In order to build that jail cell, you have to bargain and say, you have to bring this quarter amount of prisoners per year in order for us to build this to make sure it's profitable. So not only are you going to have prisoners that have cheap labor, then you're going to have another pipeline of what the pharmaceutical companies that benefits and treat these prisoners, then you have the nurses, then you have a whole economic pipeline, and you have investors. Because when the Clinton administration took power, they changed incarceration from being private, from government-owned to privatized. So when you privatize something, you tend to have profit margins. So this become a whole new industry economically. Then you have the attorneys, then you have the lawyers. At the time, the attorneys and lawyers weren't making that much money. You had one in four people in D.C were attorneys and they weren't having that much. So you needed to create this pipeline for you, for you in order to have this system and economic growth. So that was one to touch on. Then fast forward, then we went to the Republicans came into power. And what did we see? We had 9-11, September 11 came. What did that do for us? September 11th, what? We went to war in Afghanistan. And what did that do? What crisis did we see come out of that? We had the opiate crisis. If you look at the UN World Health News, it talked about the amount of opiates that is distributed from Afghanistan to the rest of the world. So those are the things that you have to look at where the money. So in 2007, 93% of the non-pharmaceutical opiates grain were formed from Afghanistan, which is about 4 billion within the US economy. So when you see that happening, what happened right after that? You start having the opiate crisis. So what happens to that in my line of work? People start dying. And then you have, like just in 2019, you had about 15,000 people die from opiate overdose. Over 2 million people in the United States have opiate addiction. So these numbers are quite alarming and it's not by accident. How did we go to war and all of a sudden we're having this issue within our communities? It's not by accident. Where does this opiate come from? The same place that we went to go say we're going to do regime change and we're going to fight these Afghanistan, these Taliban's. That's what we said we we're going to do. But no, we said we we're going to build what? Poppy seeds to kill people. So that's also a form of population control. Fast forward. Sorry, this might take, it's a mouthful. But nah, nah, I like it. You have to break down the historical timeline. So now you move forward to what? We had President Obama, you know, 
I love him, but it could Shout be problematic if you look at some of, some of the policies, right? When he came into power, what was his thing? He talked about um, global health for all, universal health for all. So that's something that most socialist socialist countries in the U and the U, U, um, the European Union are participating in. So the the UK, um, Denmark, Sweden, those are the things that they participate in. And then within the US, that's something that the the healthcare system has not been invested in for the last twenty years or so. So at this point, we need to invest into our healthcare system. And if you look at the recent stock markets, that the most things people are investing in now is what pharmaceutical companies, pharmaceutical drug makers, those are what the young millennials are invested in. So if you see this trend line, what else is supposed to happen? Now you have this global pandemic. What do you think is gonna go up? Sanitizing companies, healthcare companies, those are the things that's gonna be our next wave in the, in the as far as creating capitalism, that's the next wave of capitalism. How do you begin to reinvest? How do you shift the economy? So now it's gonna be more so of what? pharmaceutical and the healthcare system is gonna kick in. So we haven't had change in vaccines for how many amount of years? I can't quote the number per se, but someone can look into when was the last time we had change in vaccines. So that is something like Bill and Millennial Gate are very invested in. They're like the proponents for vaccines and the vaccine community. And also, how do you know that this man in 2016, he predicted the next global big wave is gonna be a pandemic. It's not necessarily gonna be like wars that are traditionally done in the past. It's not gonna be physical war, but it's gonna be a biochemical warfare. And this is one of them. No one knows the root of this. No one knows how it can be solved. So now you have to go back to the same companies that are gonna be benefiting for them to produce what? The cure for this pandemic. If you look at HIV, that's a virus that was created that's killing Africans today. That's the number one thing that's killing Africans on a daily basis. It's not cholera, it's not malaria, it's HIV. So if you look at these things a man made created, I think nature versus nurture, I think that is the latter. I think that this was man, man made created. To sum up your question now. Nicely said, Ms. Safa. I enjoyed that, that brief history lesson and mostly how you were able to draw a connection from pivotal moments in history and tie it into current events that we're experiencing. And the way that you were able to do that was by following the money. This is a term that I was able to extract from your response. And it's funny and interesting how understanding the economic influence and how it can change and alter our perception on how we view certain situations is very important. So thank you for that. So now knowing all of this and understanding all of this, how do we move forward? Individuals who are not empowered, what can we do on an individual level to get us to weather the storm? Um, I think one of the things from an individual level, I think I always start from the individual, then to the community, and then to the global perspective. So on an individual level, I think that for me, it made me become more aware of the opportunities I have. How do I become more creative? How do I channel? How do I become solution focused, right? Like right now, we're not sustainable communities. Like if the government said today we're not going to eat, we're all going to die. No one knows how to grow food. No one knows how to purify water. Like we don't do like home economics anymore. This is something that my mom and my grandma knew how to do. So how do we go back to the basic domestic skills for survival? 
right? How do I shoot a gun? I don't know how to shoot a gun. If someone was supposed to break into my home and say, hey, lady, I need the rest of your food, I can't protect myself. So on an individual level for brown and black people, that's what I, the communities I serve, so I can speak towards that. It's how do you begin to become self-sustainable? How do you begin to learn how to take care of yourself and your community and your family? Create like a little community garden. These are the things that we can go back into. And spend, instead of spending hours on social media learning how to twerk and listen to Cardi B, how do you grow food, right? When life is at hand, what do you need? You need food, water, and air. Those are the things that you need. So how do we go back to those basic things? And also, how do we begin to teach the next generation of our greatness? Like I was telling you the other day when we spoke about how black people were always, we've always been creative, right? If you look at what some of the inventions that were made, for example, the streetlight was created by what? A brown, per a black person. Peanut butter, a black person. Let's mm -hmm. say the microwave. All these things were impacted by ancestors. But now, when it comes to in ingenuity and technology, we're at the bottom feeders. What happened to our creativity? We're getting distracted. What are we distracted by? The weave, the fake lash, the nails, the hair, the Gucci. And I'm not saying we can't indulge. Yes, we can participate, but there's a level of responsibility we owe to our ancestors that we always have to be awakened to know that we're at the mercy of whatever the powers may be. So if we're at the mercy of people, then you always have to be able to protect yourself. On a global scale, I think that this brings us to a position of, okay, what is the economy going to look like after this, right? When we get out of this, that's question number one. Question number two We've been in the, and most of us have been inside or staying home for at least three weeks now. So for me, okay, now there's a new form of me doing business, teletherapy. That's something that's new to me, but I'm learning how to speak to my clients through FaceTime and through the phone, which is different, right? So that's a different way of economic change. And how is the law going to impact these new behaviors that are interacting on? How is like HIPAA going to impact the way that we do our current work, what does privacy looks like now that everyone is within the spaces they're in? What, how is technology going to change the framework of the rest of our lives? Because now I'm speaking to you in the East Coast. I'm in the East Coast and you're on the West Coast and we're able to have this through technology. So I think that's on a global level, tech is going to play a key component in how we move forward as far as how we change the conversation and what the economics sphere or the spectrum will move forward into. So there's so many things that we can focus on. I think, I think one, start with self, start with your community, and then think globally, what is going to be your own footprint, right? What is going to be your footprint on the world? It might not be to the magnitude of Dr. King or Apple. It might not be to that magnitude, but it can start with, hey, this summer I'm going to just mentor kids and see how we can grow food. Okay, this summer I'm going to mentor a kid and teach him how to code. Like, what is this thing that you're going to do to change someone else's perspective? So I think that's the way we can move forward. Again, great response, Ms. Safa. I, <laughs> I'm an avid note-taker, so I want to be able to summarize everything that you just said here. Now, you were able to break this down into three different categories. Self-improvement, community involvement, and global advancement. And you talked about different things such as being more creative and how can we be more solution focused 
understanding how can we advance our domestic skills, learning how to shoot and protect ourselves, growing our own garden, purifying water. How can we be more self-sustainable moving forward? And then again, being, uh, being aware of our distractions, the things that are pulling us away from responsibilities, not just on an individual level, but also on a community level. And then again, you have the global impact economy question mark. What does that look like moving forward? How does this economic change alter the way businesses do business? And what does privacy look like moving forward? And then the advancement of technology. I remember back in undergrad, I read this article, I think from Muse.com is that within, you know, two decades or something, everyone is going to be required to have some sort of knowledge in technology or just like learning how to code. And I think that's major key to us moving forward and weathering the storm. Is there anything else that you want to share with us um, or any last words that you have? Um, I think the last words is more so love. I think let's not forget the human the basic human need is love and companionship, right? How do we foster that when we're supposed to be isolated? So for one, FaceTime your grandma. You know, your grandma's vulnerable, but you can FaceTime or you can check on her morning or evening. How do you do that? You can write a letter. You can mail something in the mail, right? There are other ways to still nurture relationships without being in person. Um, also, you can do something spontaneous. Send an email, right? If you have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, send an email of surprise. Oh, check your inbox. I sent you something. So that's the way we can continue to nurture and continue to share the love that we have for one another. So always remember love for self trumps love for others. So start with self and then you pass that forward to everyone that you come across. And thank you so much, Naum, for having me. I think your platform is wonderful to give us the opportunity to have these dialogues and to inspire and to motivate and to challenge. So you can't only inspire, but you have to challenge the, the perspective that we all have. So I thank you for having me on your podcast today. And thank you guys for listening. That's all. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show, Ms. Safa. I appreciate you for coming through and kicking some knowledge with me. This concludes the end of this episode. As always, the name of the game is improvement. So send the feedback my way. DM, text, or email me at persuasionsofcomfort at gmail.com. I am your host. This is Persuasions of Comfort. Till next time.